So the Orange Book takes its inspiration from uh, the incoming government briefs that public services uh, prepare in the inverted commas holiday season while they have no political lords and masters uh, and during the so-called caretaker period of government. Uh, And traditionally they've produced two incoming government briefs, one known as the Blue Book and one known as the Red Book. And back in the old days, there was literally a book with a blue cover and a book with a red Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. Welcome to the Grattan podcast channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute, and today we've got a special treat for you. A discussion on the quality and performance of Australia's state and territory governments. It's election season in Australia. The federal election is expected around next May, but before then, there'll be elections in the two biggest states, Victoria in November and New South Wales next March. So to mark this festival of democracy, Grattan has produced a major new report on the state of the states, complete with a scorecard that rates the performance of each state and territory across a range of policy areas, hospitals, schools, cities, regions, the list goes on. It looks at the record and it proposes a new policy agenda. It's a broad sweep, but also a deep dive into policies that make a difference to our lives. To help me through, I'll be talking to Grattan's team of program directors and policy experts who've been working all year on what we're calling the State Orange Book of 2018. But first, to give us an overview of the project and the findings, I'm joined by Grattan's CEO, John Daly. John, welcome to you. It's a pleasure. First up, John, what is the Orange Book? What's it seeking to achieve? So the Orange Book takes its inspiration from uh, the incoming government briefs that public services uh, prepare in the inverted commas holiday season while they have no political lords and masters uh, and during the so-called caretaker period of government. Uh, And traditionally, they've produced two incoming government briefs, one known as the Blue Book and one known as the Red Book. And back in the old days, there was literally a book with a blue cover and a book with a red cover. Who got the blue and who got the red? So if the Liberals got elected, uh, then the blue book went to the Liberal Premier. uh, And indeed, there'd be a book for the incoming Liberal Minister for Education and Minister for Health and so on. Uh, And these would say, look, here is what we as the public service um, understand your priorities to be. This is how we would implement them. And this is what we think the overall priorities should be within the kind of government that you've told us you want to be. Uh, So that's if the Liberals got elected. And if that happened, uh, then the Red Book would literally be pulped. These days, of course, um, they're uh, in fact delivered on iPads. Uh, And so presumably, if Liberals get elected, the uh, red iPad will simply be deleted and one hopes that the software, that the hardware will still get used. (laughs) Um, uh, So that was the inspiration for this. And what we've prepared is an orange book, an incoming government brief uh, for whoever wins the next state election that lays out what we think the policy priorities ought to be. Uh, And of course, because Grattan's independent, uh, we can afford to say that some of the things that are being proposed by political parties are not what we think the priority should be. Uh, 
And obviously, on the other hand, there's some things that we do agree with. We're not just looking forward, though. We're also looking back and assessing performance. So tell us, overall, after this project, what's your impression of state government in Australia? So what we've done as part of this project is produce a state scorecard, more mm-hmm. accurately, state and territory scorecard. And uh, it looks... Um, at a range of policy areas, that most of the major policy areas that states are responsible for, and it asks how they're doing. Um, and so, for example, uh, we look at the, the the most important indicators we could find for each of these areas. Not right. too many of them. So, for example, in health, um, we've looked at how many people die of diseases that, in theory, medical science some of the time should stop that happening. Mm-hmm. We've also looked at how that's different in regions because that's a material issue in health. Uh, we've looked at the cost um, of um, to do uh, operations in hospitals. Uh, and then we've looked at how long you wait to get surgery. Uh, now, that's not the only things that we care about in health, but sure. they're pretty representative of the really big things that we care about. So we've done that across each of these policy areas and on a single page. Uh, if you um, go and have a look at it on the website, you can get this map of how the states compare across all of these policy areas. The, we've also then looked at how that's changed over the last five years. And again, you can kind of get a map of which states have really changed things more than others. Now, the, the thing that really struck me as we've pulled this exercise together is how much variation there is between states. States are slightly the sort of poor cousins mm. um, in Australian politics. Um, you know, federal politics always seems so much more glamorous. Mm. Um, but states are responsible for many of the things that make the biggest difference to your life. School education, hospitals, housing, energy. You know, these, these make a, a big difference. And there's a lot of variation between the states. And often those differences are the consequence of policy choices. Often policy choices made as much as 25 years ago, but nevertheless, policy choices that are still affecting people's lives today. John, you've called it a scorecard. Are you able to summarise which states are doing best and which states are lagging or not? So the short answer is that no state gets straight A's. Right. And no state gets straight D's. Uh, it's more a kind of case that that um, every every student in the class is kind of good at something. Yep. And unfortunately, every student in the class is pretty dreadful at something too. Uh, so, for example, um, uh, New South Wales has got real problems in housing, mm-hmm. uh, and they're getting worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, it's got a much better budget position, and it has improved a lot over the last five years. Right. Victoria is doing particularly well on um, health and has been for quite some time. On the other hand, um, its economic outcomes are pretty ordinary. Its housing outcomes are ordinary, albeit not quite so bad uh, as New South Wales. Um, uh, Its energy outcomes are pretty ordinary. You've used the phrase in this book, the problems aren't hard to find. Why do you say that? Where are the problems? So some of the big high-level problems are, you know, as a country, we've had um, not no significant increase in, in incomes per capita over the last five years. Mm. So that's not a very beautiful story. Um, uh, the cost of electricity has, in fact, gone up. Yes. And at the same time, we've made basically no progress uh, in terms of getting policy in place that will reduce emissions. And so not surprisingly, emissions have not materially reduced. Yes. Uh, we 
are pretty much just treading water in school education. Our outcomes relative to the rest of the world are, um, well, our outcomes are flat, is the best description. And meanwhile, uh, many of our peers elsewhere in the world are going ahead. Indeed. So we've gone from being sort of, you know, towards the top of the class to being in the middle because we haven't been doing our homework and everybody else has. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of those strike me as pity big problems. Um, and perhaps one of the brightest spots, uh, on the other hand, is health. So so it's not all a tale of woe. Are there some are there some achievements here? Are there some things that we should really celebrate? I think there are. Um, Australia's health outcomes are some of the very best in the world. Mm-hmm. This is an extremely good country to get sick in. Um, uh, your chances of recovery are quite high. Uh, and at the same time, the cost is not particularly high either. So Australians get about the, some of the best health outcomes in the world, uh, and they are improving quite quickly. Uh, and at the same time, we pay about kind of middle of the road for those outcomes. Um, any way you take it then, we've got a very efficient health system. Mm. As always, we could do better. Uh, and indeed, one of the things that comes out of this report is that there are some states that have done a lot better than others, on particularly on hospitals, uh, and that means that the states that are not doing so well could really improve their act and we get either better outcomes or spend less money or hopefully a bit of both. The other big bright spot for me um, is around institutional reforms. So right. uh, uh, listeners may remember that we put out a uh, report a couple of um, weeks ago called Who's in the Room uh, that looked at the way that access and money Uh, or rather money, buys access Mm. uh, in Australian politics. Uh, And that report focused on the Commonwealth level, and I don't think it's a very beautiful story at the Commonwealth level. At the state level, it's actually a different story. So the states have done many of the things that we recommended in that report on who's in the room. Um, So many of them uh, have made uh, political donations much more transparent. Right. Uh, They don't hide um, some of the payments as kind of other categories. They aggregate them up so that if the same person makes lots of donations, um, they get uh, that's exposed as opposed to just all of them being under the threshold and we've got no idea who it is. Mm-hmm. Um, they publish those donations um, more or less in real time as opposed to the Commonwealth where you often wait 18 months. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, they have made lobbying a lot more transparent so that they literally publish who ministers are meeting with. Um, we've seen the effect of that. Um, in terms of driving better governance in both Queensland and New South Wales. And and as we put this together, we realised that actually all of the states pretty much, with the exception of WA, have got a lot better at this over the last five years uh, and are now in a position which doesn't look too bad. Right. Uh, right. And, of course, that also has implications for the Commonwealth. Um, uh, no doubt many people will say that the sky will fall in if the Commonwealth does uh, any of the things we suggested. Uh, and it appears that many of the states have, in fact, done those things and the sky appears to be staying up so far. <laughs> so I want to ask you, John, about two chapters in the Orange Book which are pretty fundamental to the whole discussion. The first is economic development. And I want to ask what role the, the states play in economic development because when we talk about the economy in Australia, we tend to think of the national government or indeed of international forces and trends way beyond our control. What role does the states play? 
So that's absolutely right. There's a lot of things that the Commonwealth controls, um, uh, particularly you know income taxes, corporate taxes. Um, you know the majority of the tax base. Mm. Um, uh, it controls uh, corporate regulation, uh, mergers and acquisitions, uh, a lot of competition law. Um, so there's no question the Commonwealth has a really big influence. Uh, but the states do have some levers, although they're often not the levers that we think of first. Go on. So uh, in particular, states have the planning lever. Uh, they control land use, yep. uh, which is you know not on the radar screen of a lot of economists, and it probably should be. Uh, one of the things we're discovering about modern economies is that they're really tending to cluster in cities as we become an economy which is more and more about services. Those services businesses tend to set up where other services businesses are, and that's often about in cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but exactly where businesses can set up, whether or not people can buy homes uh, or rent homes that are close to those jobs, fundamentally depends on planning policy. Uh, and so planning policy doesn't just affect um, housing affordability, and uh, you know we obviously talk about that elsewhere in this podcast, um, but it also has a significant economic yes. uh, impact. And um, state governments probably need to be a lot more prepared to use the lever for that precise purpose. Um, there's other things that governments can do. Um, uh, a lot of the remaining reforms in our economy are kind of the micro design of little markets mm. um, or, or material markets, but individual markets. Mm. So, for example, the precise way that we design the energy market yes. makes a difference to the efficiency or otherwise of the energy market, uh, and that ultimately makes a difference um, to the rest of the economy. The precise way that we regulate legal services makes a difference to how efficiently or otherwise those legal services are delivered. Um, the precise way that we regulate ports makes yes. a difference to how um, efficient those ports are. And all of these things are ultimately things that state governments have to do, although they're kind of typically a long way um, underneath the radar screen. Any states better than others with regard to encouraging and developing economic development look not obviously uh, and and that's not an assessment that we've really tried to do here because in order to do that you literally have to go through it industry by industry by industry and there's a lot of them uh, and uh, that's no doubt an exercise that's worth doing but it's not one that we've been able to do here okay so another another chapter I wanted to ask you particularly about John is on regional development now this was one of the most interesting chapters to me because it seems to challenge a few popular misconceptions about regional Australia. And I thought the first of those was the idea that the regions are being left behind at the moment. Yeah. So uh, one of the kind of most surprising findings I think we've had at Grattan in the last year, couple of years was this finding that incomes per capita in the regions are more or less keeping pace with the cities. They've always been lower. That's not news. Sure. But they've been growing at about the same rate. In fact, the place where incomes are growing slowest in Australia is not the regions, um, but the outer suburban, outer suburbs of our big cities. Right. Uh, so if you uh, go up to Shepherd and you'll see quite a lot of BMWs in the street. <laughs> uh, so the problem is not the income growth per capita. Those people who are in regions are doing reasonably well and they're kind of in fact, if anything, their incomes have grown a little bit faster than people in the city on average. What is different, however, is that the the population of cities is growing much faster than in the regions. Yes. Uh, and, and often what's happening in regions is that um, 
the the town of 15 20,000 people will be growing pretty quickly the surrounding area will effectively be depopulating and overall but the region will be growing a little bit but not very fast mm-hmm. in terms of population now the the problem with that of course is that there is very little that state governments can do Now, that's not going to stop promises being made that state governments are going to try and divert population growth from cities to regions. It's a very popular thing to promise. Indeed, federal governments as well. well. Federal governments as well. Very popular thing to promise. And the reason that it's very popular uh, is that it means that if I'm living in the city, I no longer have to worry about there being any subdivisions in my street (laughs) because uh, instead all of that extra population is going to be going to the regions. Now, the problem with this is that it's a fantasy. Uh, and the reason that it's a fantasy is that we have a hundred odd years worth of policy programs trying to do this, mm-hmm. and so far none of them work. Right. If you look around the world, you will find governments that have got policies that are aimed at essentially getting regions to grow faster than they would otherwise, and you will find very few programs that appear to be working, and around the world you will find cities growing much faster than the less densely populated regions around them. And that's not because of government policy, that's despite government policy. So that's the problem. And then worse than that, I mean, we to the extent that these programs are set up, by and large, we can't prove that they don't work. And the reason we can't prove that they don't work is that governments basically don't collect the data. Right. And one of the uh, things that was intriguing for me as we were looking at this is... Um, as you pull this together across states, you realise that the Auditors General in all of New South Wales and Victoria and Queensland and Western Australia have written what you know more or less seems to be the same report, saying you have a large regional development program. If you are spending this <laughs> kind of money, we would normally expect that uh, you know you did it properly. We would expect to see very clear criteria about where you're going to spend the money. By and large, we don't see that. We would expect to see that you are clearly following this cri- these criteria when you do have them. By and large, we don't see that. Um, we would expect that you would evaluate the program to find out whether or not it did the kind of things mm-hmm. you said it was going to do. By and large, we see no attempt at serious evaluation whatsoever. The Victorian one was particularly spectacular. As the Victorian Order General pointed out, they had evaluated the program as a success yeah. because the programs... Um, uh, had been expected to create a large number of jobs. Had been expected to. Yes. They didn't actually check whether they did create jobs, but because they were expected to create lots of jobs, they were a success. John, you've gone further in the in the Orange Book, however. Not just a fantasy, this idea of repopulating the regions, but a dangerous fantasy. Where's the danger? Surely this is a, a benign, harmless political promise. Well, it's it's dangerous in three ways. One is that we're, you know, we're wasting money. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that's money that could always go to better places. Uh, so um, it's dangerous for that reason. Right. It's really dangerous because it provides an excuse to not do anything about planning in the cities to deal with population growth and deal with the demand for extra homes. Uh-huh. And you know that's essentially the world we have been in for you know way too much of the last decade. Um, very rapid population growth in our large cities. Uh, and a real reluctance to do anything about planning that would lead to more homes being built um, because the politics of planning is pretty poisonous. Uh, and it's just so much easier to say, oh, look, all of those people are going to be, the, going to be in the region, so we don't need to subdivide anything in your street. Uh, and the <laughs> problem is that when you do that, um, then population goes up. The quantity of housing doesn't go up nearly as fast. 
consequence of that is that fewer people can afford to buy their own homes, particularly if they're young and lower mm-hmm. income. Mm-hmm. Cons- uh, you also wind up with um, people down the bottom tending to spend more and more of their income on rent. And then the consequence of that is you wind up with more people that are homeless. This has mm-hmm. got real-life consequences. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's a dangerous fantasy. Now, the good news is that the Victorian and New South Wales governments and Queensland governments have actually got better over the last couple of years. So mm-hmm. they've seen substantial planning reforms that have led to more housing. Uh, and uh, the last year or two, both um, all three of Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane have had housing growth more or less commensurate with population growth. The only catch is, and particularly in Sydney, they've got a decade worth of not building enough, uh, and uh, they're going to need to build a lot more housing to deal with that problem. Uh, so that's why it's a dangerous fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of diverting population to regions um, just provides an excuse not to do the right things on planning, and particularly given we've got real political pressure to wind back those planning reforms. Yes. Um, uh, you know, it would be a disaster for our children, uh, for the people who want to downsize, and for the people who will inevitably move to these cities um, if we if we wind back those planning reforms. And the third reason that it's a dangerous fantasy is when your policy is all about, I'm going to get more people to regions, yes. you wind up with policies that are very much focused on you know, supposedly creating jobs in regions. By and large, those programs don't work. And by and large, they go towards things that actually don't help the people in the regions all that much. My view would be if you're going to spend money on the regions, and heaven knows we should, you might as well spend it on improving education outcomes, improving health outcomes, and Mm. so on, which Mm. probably won't lead to any extra population growth. But at least it will help the lives of the people who are there. Uh, And so I would much rather have a reality that says regions are by and large not going to see their populations grow that fast. Some regional cities will see their populations grow, albeit not as fast as Sydney and Melbourne. And we're going to ensure that we have the very best services we can afford um, in terms of schools and hospitals and emergency services and transport and um, sports facilities and arts facilities um, in regions, uh, rather than pouring money into regional businesses and hoping that they grow. John, I'm going to come back to you at the end of this podcast, if I may. But now I want to talk to Grattan Institute's program directors and policy experts on some of the specific policy and portfolio areas as we continue to rate the states. Joined now by Grattan's Health Program Director, Stephen Duckett. Welcome to you, Stephen. Thanks, Paul. John Daly's introduced us to the broad sweep of the Orange Book, but when it comes to state governments, health is the big ticket item. So, Stephen, how, how big is that big ticket and how are the states performing? Well, health is the single biggest component of uh, state government budgets and, in fact, it's, I think, the fastest growing component. So mm. it's obviously a matter of great uh, concern. Also, from the public's perspective, they know that what the states do are responsible, they are responsible for public hospital services. Mm -hmm. And they uh, are pretty aware that it's uh, the state government's responsibility about public hospital waiting lists. They're pretty aware that the state is the one that runs public hospitals. And so it's a high political visibility 
four states. And when the voters and the public look at their state governments and their performance, what are they seeing at the moment? Well, the, it's a mixed bag across the, the country. There are some states that are performing quite well on whatever metric you look like you mm-hmm. look at, mm-hmm. and others that are performing not so well. And so, for example, we looked at four metrics, uh, four ways of measuring performance uh, in our headline numbers. Uh, Two of them were about what we called avoidable mortality. That is, mortality which is influenceable by the health system or preventive actions. Mm -hmm. So vaccine-preventable diseases, for example, you shouldn't expect people to die of those. And uh, and this is looking broadly, not only in hospitals, but looking in the deaths in the community and so on. And what we found, we have two measures of this, and what we found was invariably, or almost in every state, the death rate in regional areas outside the capital cities was 10 to 20% higher than in the capital cities. Mm -hmm. And there's, in this day and age, we shouldn't expect differences of that kind. Aren't Uh, we talking, Stephen, about the tyranny of distance here, though? Well, yeah, we may be talking about the tyranny of distance, Paul, but, but don't forget... Uh, often the, the, thing, the, the things we want to influence are preventable. And so, you know, it is not as if we have to build a new heart transplant centre in every t- country town. It's not as if we have to have an MRI in every, on every street corner. What we're saying is there are low-cost interventions that can be done at the community level, and we should be involving the community in developing preventive strategies to addressing some of the so-called social social determinants of health, that is, the economic employment and other sorts of factors that influence health status in rural Australia, in regional Australia, and the states ought to be doing that, working with the Commonwealth, working with primary healthcare networks, working with local hospitals to, to get this done and to improve the health status of people in regional Australia. Mm. So it might be, it should be possible for there to be as good healthcare in the Kimberley as there is in Perth? Well, what we see in some states, like Queensland, there's very little difference between regional Australia, regional Queensland and Brisbane, but right. there's big differences in other states. And even a state like Victoria seems to have higher mortality rates in regional Victoria than Queensland does. And that doesn't make sense if, you, if you're looking at, uh, you know, if you're saying that it's all to do with MRIs and so on. Hmm. Uh, prevention, education, are these things that can work in the health system that would have some impact on avoidable mortality? Yes, and what we can see is some hospitals, some states are better than others at doing it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's what we're saying. And, and I think that's probably a theme of the whole Orange Book, isn't it? That we, can, we should be doing more benchmarking between states. We should be doing more comparisons. We should be holding up a lens, holding it, you know, showing what's actually happening and then saying to Victoria or New South Wales, why aren't you learning from these other states? Now, what about the other measures? I know that you've put a lot of attention into waiting lists and waiting times, which are very high-profile complaint of a lot of people. Yeah. So what we what we looked at uh, were a couple of different measures of waiting times. The first and the and the most common measure used is the average waiting time. In fact, it's called the median waiting time, which means half the people wait longer and half the people wait shorter than this time. Mm-hmm. And across Australia. Uh, the median waiting time is around uh, 38 days uh, for elective procedures, and that's actually gone gone up a little bit across Australia in the in the last five years. But there's a substantial difference between states. You know, look at the two biggest states. 
Victoria has a, a median waiting time of 30 days and New South Wales almost twice as long, wow. 54 days. And in what's obviously Victoria has put a lot of effort into this in the last five years. The waiting time's gone down by about uh, 17%, but New South Wales has gone up by about 10%. So there's a huge difference between the direction of change and the level of, of, of performance between New South Wales and Victoria. Stephen, just flesh that out a bit for me. What can New South Wales learn from Victoria to give people shorter time before elective surgery? Well, it's partly uh, paying attention to it, um, you yep. know, forcing the, the, the hospitals to really uh, manage this and to manage their performance. And it's also um, innovations. And so uh, in earlier in my career, I was I involved in establishing the first elective procedure centre in the public sector in Australia mm -hmm. when, I, when I was involved at the Alfred. And what we said is we're not getting enough elective procedures done. Let's have a dedicated freestanding elective procedure centre where the patients don't get bumped because of emergencies. Right. And it's been, it's turned into a, a way of massively uh, clearing the waiting list. So uh, I, I think, you know, it's being innovative, addressing the underlying problems and putting incentives on hospitals to fix it. Mm -hmm. So we're not just talking about surgery and elective surgery. Um, dental care seems to be a particular sore point, if I can use that yeah, expression. Um, it's a real pain, you might say. <laughs> um, the So what I like to call the, the dental delay is, mm. is a real problem. And so we have uh, not one of our headline metrics, but one of the things we address in the report is the waiting time for public dental services. And there are two things that are disappointing here. Mm -hmm. First, patients wait a long time. The metric we use is people who wait more than a year, more than a year for public dental services. And you've got some, say in some states, uh, such as Victoria, where people want about, half, about, sorry, about a fifth of the population, 18% of people who need uh, public dental care waited more than 12 months. And this is totally unacceptable. Mm -hmm. But the second thing is we're using survey data to, to report that because the states, despite agreeing uh, five years ago in a, in a national agreement to produce common, common statistics and on a standardised basis, we do not have standardised information about public waiting lists for dental care across Australia. Uh, even the Productivity Commission, which does this comparative report every year, can't get comparative information on public dental waiting lists. So mm. it's both the fact that we've got long waiting lists mm. that the people, the patients are reporting that and that the states don't seem to care about reporting the waiting times uh, it is uh, is pretty, pretty poor. And again, this is a theme running right through our Orange Book Beyond Health, that there is insufficient information, the data on all sorts of measures of public policy and public well-being in Australia is not good enough. It's not, of course, not in the interest of governments to <laughs> to to actually be transparent. Uh, it's only the the public that needs transparency. <laughs> the the you know the more you can cover it up, the the better they are. Steve, Stephen, I want to touch on one other uh, issue. I guess one of the really big stories of our adult life is. The the increased awareness of mental illness in Australia. It's just how prevalent is it now and how damaging can it be now? Well, the, again, we've got the same story about poor information. 
So we have got a section in our report uh, on mental health, but there's no data in there at all. Mm. Because, again, the information we can have is information about cost, uh, the, the amount of money that each state spends on mental health services, but nothing about how the services are performing, nothing about the experience Uh, that people with mental illness have with state mental health services, nothing about how long uh, they might have to wait uh, for a community team to come and see them, how long they're waiting in uh, hospital emergency departments to get admitted to a mental health bed. So these measures of what actually happens and the, the shortfall in services are just not available. So all we've got is a plea that we should have more information to enable us to compare performance again. Absolutely. So so sum up for me, Stephen, generally. <laughs> so generally, uh, it, it's a patchwork. We, it, it, there's another measure that we have mentioned and we have looked at, which is an efficiency measure. Yes. And what we see here is, again, significant differences between the states. Uh, in Victoria, the average patient, uh, taking into account complexity, costs about $4,700 to be treated in a public hospital for mm-hmm. an inpatient. Across Australia, it's $5,200, so it's a a 10% difference. And what this means is there's money to be saved in the public hospital system that can be reinvested to address these problems we've been talking about. So it's not necessarily jacking up the taxes and and say, let's spend more, spend more, spend more. It's saying, let's spend it more wisely. Let's start to address the efficiency issues so that we can actually meet the needs of the public better. Stephen Duckett, thank you. Thanks, Paul. Tony Wood is Grattan Institute's Energy Program Director. Tony, welcome to you. Now, I know it's not your fault, but energy policy in Australia, Tony, seems to be in perpetual turmoil. Can the states rescue us, perhaps? Well, Paul, thank you. I think somebody needs to. Um, frankly, it has got a little bit of a mess. Um, sometimes the mess may be exaggerated, but there's been so much politics around energy and the associated questions of climate change that I think many people in the community, consumers, producers, those concerned about our economic um, development would be quite rightly appalled at where we've ended up. Mm. And I think given where the Commonwealth, the current Commonwealth government is just at the moment, it would seem that there is absolutely a role for the states to step up, given that they always do have a role on energy policy anyway. But isn't there a problem that we have a national energy market? Aren't all the politicians that I hear talking about the energy debate our federal politicians? Well, Paul, that's become certainly the the loudest voices in recent times have come from the federal politicians. But historically, the state and territory governments have owned the energy businesses. Mm -hmm. They've regulated the energy businesses and they've set the policies around the energy businesses. And what's called currently the national the national electricity market, one that excludes the Western Australia and the Northern Territory, mm. is one that was actually put together by the state and territory governments and implemented through uh, legislation that actually is done at a state level. Right. So many of the legislative levers associated with the energy sector are actually in the hands of state governments, and the Commonwealth is almost an invited guest into that process. Okay. Um, when you look at the energy side, climate is a different 
matter altogether. Mm. Okay, but on energy, we hear a lot about the, the three goals, if you like, of energy policy, reliability, affordability, sustainability. Now, after your work on the state orange book, just give us a feel for how we're performing across the three measures. Well, when you look at the numbers, they don't quite seem as bad as the, the general view in the media would have you believe at times. Mm-hmm. Certainly on price, over the last 10 years, prices have gone up very significantly, initially for most of that period due to network pricing, which flows through to consumers and more recently, retail pricing. Um, and that shows little sign of really improving, although there have been some small improvements and the Commonwealth Government is um, looking to really have put some real pressure on energy companies to do something about that. Um, when you look at reliability, it's not surprising that when you have a statewide blackout like we had in September of 2016 in South Australia, mm-hmm. that governments have to do something. Um, it, it would be untenable for them to not. And they did. Now, some of the things... Um, in hindsight, even at the time, seemed a bit over the top, mm-hmm. but um, it was understandable politically they needed to do that. But most, the overwhelming majority of our concerns about um, shortages, outages, blackouts, and so forth are actually caused by extreme weather events, um, possums on the lines, all that sort of stuff, <laughs> rather than fundamentally a failure of policy. What policy is not, however, doing very well is providing the right investment signals to make sure that we continue to have a reliable system into the future. And of course, when you come to the third element of the so-called energy trilemma, namely reducing greenhouse gas emissions, this is absolutely where the Commonwealth should have, and arguably on an international perspective does, Mm -hmm. have primary responsibility. And so there's a complex interaction that goes on in our federal system, which doesn't lend itself easily to smooth governance. At times, it's quite clunky, and at times, serious tensions emerge, which of course, from a consumer perspective is not helpful. So is there anything that states can do with regard to sustainability, with regard to emissions reductions? Well, I think at times you've almost got to decide, well, we've had enough and now we have to take some control ourselves. Now, I think uh, the uh, some words recently that the industry would do it itself uh, are probably a bit uh, difficult to implement. However, from a state perspective, um, if the vacuum on emissions policy at a Commonwealth level continues... Hmm and obviously we'll have an election sometime in the next 12 months in, at, a camp, at a federal level, if that vacuum continues, then I think it is entirely appropriate for the states to come together, as they once did back in 2005 six, to look to implementing a national emissions reduction scheme, albeit based upon state legislation once again. And even if you know we have liberal governments, as we do right now in New South Wales and South Australia, these are governments themselves that have pretty strong commitments to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so it would seem to me, in the interest of all those states, if this vacuum continues, to do exactly uh, that and come together. The vastly strong preference would be for the Commonwealth to lead that process. But I think in the absence of that, there would almost be no choice. And I think the obligation would then fall on the states. You've made some pretty direct recommendations in the Orange Book, including about... um solar and renewable energy. I want to ask you about a couple of those. The Victorian government in this pre-election phase is making a very big commitment to rooftop solar panels. Good or bad, Tony? Well, I think the proliferation of rooftop solar in Australia 
has generally been a good thing. I mean, I think people like having solar on their roof. They like renewable energy. Yep. Uh, they're prepared to pay for it. Many of them, I, I think, don't appreciate that way it's paid for is not always as fair as it might be. And in many cases, effectively, people without solar are paying for those who have solar. Right. And those sort of things are a distortion. But what, we have, what we've seen in the, in, across the world, and certainly in Australia, is a dramatic reduction in the cost of solar um, in the last 10 years or so. Indeed. Nothing that anybody foresee, foresaw 10 years ago. And so uh, what that means is that when a government says, well, we're just going to provide more direct subsidies for something that's arguably already affordable, then that, it seems to me, is a waste of taxpayers' money. Um, that is not an argument against renewable energy, but these are things that should be paying for themselves now, and scarce taxpayers' funds should be used for other things. Okay, and another of the direct recommendations relates to gas exploration. Uh, the moratorium in the southern states uh, you are highly critical of. Well, I think the, the history of gas in, in Australia has been one there gas development, gas delivery and so forth um, since the 1970s. And before that, if you go back to what used to be called towns gas or coal gas, mm -hmm. has underpinned a lot of activity. And certainly in the southern part of Australia, where the weather is generally cooler, we tend to use gas for heating. And so average um, ha households use more gas uh, in these states than they do in other parts of Australia. So gas is more important in a sense. And in many businesses, you also use gas for heating and so forth. Now, Victoria particularly was a, a long-term source of, of reliable gas from the Gippsland Basin, which was offshore. Sure. A lot of the concerns about development of new resources are focused on some technologies that are used to extract the gas, um, stimulating fractures in the system to be able to get the gas to flow. And these, of course, some concerns for environment, people concerned about the environment, as they should. Yep. Um, these things need to be addressed. But a blanket moratorium... It seems to us is a very, very clunky way to do this. All of the scientific work that's been done by, by Australia's chief scientists, by um, other state government scientists have said, look, like any resource development, this can be done well, can be done safely. The consequence of the moratorium that we have today is that um, we are excluding a supply of gas and in a country in an east coast part of Australia where gas prices are a great concern yes. to households and businesses, that is a very difficult situation and would be relieved if we were able to remove the moratoriums and have gas development in the southern states. Um, that is not to say this should, should be done without good regulatory controls and consistent um, project approvals on a case-by-case -case basis. But um, the consequence of doing what we're doing now is meaning that we're just adding more costs to consumers and I would argue with very little benefit for the environment. Tony, more broadly, give me give me the benefit of all your experience and all your work on the on the Orange Book as well. Let me ask you the big question: Should we or can we be confident that Australia can finally get its act together on energy policy? Well, in two thousand and eight, I did work for the Garno Climate Change Review. That was ten years ago, and I thought we were going to fix it then. So <laughs> I, I'm not great at doing forecasts, Paul, and we don't tend to do it. Grattan forecasts of where things are going to go. However, I think that you know, the level of concern, the level of political focus, and the level of both good and bad will in some cases that have gone into this means that I think we are approaching a point where the crunch will come, and I think we honestly will move beyond this to a better place. Now, there is a major transition that will continue over several decades. 
The role of renewables, the role of coal will be debated at length by many, many people. The role of reliability, the importance of that as we move towards a new system will be important. Um, but electricity underpins our economy. Electricity underpins our lifestyles in the mm. modern world. Mm. In the 21st century, we, this will be an electric century. Electricity is important not just to making stuff, but it's also important for the information that we use to run our information society. So it is critical, and I think that's recognised. And it was a great pity that the, the, the efforts of the Commonwealth this year, particularly Minister Frydenberg, came undone by the internal politics of the coalition. And so as a result of it, but I do think that that is something that even though we are in a, still in a nasty place at the Commonwealth level, I think there are some signs that there's a way out of this. And I would have some confidence that a combination of the goodwill of the states, in this case in the Orange Book, but also I think there will be changes at the Commonwealth level which will help the situation forward. So I actually, despite the frustration of the last 10 years, I do feel optimistic that we will see, um, see ourselves heading towards a much better outcome for all Australians. Tony Wood, thank you. I'm joined now by Grattan's Transport and Cities Program Director, Marion Terrell. Marion, welcome to you. Hi, Paul. One of the big themes of the Orange Book, Marion, is Australia's booming population, most particularly in the major cities. What's happening in terms of population trends? We've seen really fast population growth. So for Melbourne in particular has been one of the fastest growing Australian cities with a rate of growth of 2.3% per year on average for each of the five years between 2011 and 2016. So by international standards, that is a very fast rate of population growth. Is it only Melbourne? Not only Melbourne. Sydney has been growing really fast too. Its rate is 1.9% per year on average for those five years. And we're also seeing fast growth in some of the smaller cities. Gold Coast stands out at 2.3%, Sunshine Coast at 2.6%. And, and, and many of the, across the board, the population growth rate in cities really, by, by the standards of the developed world, has been very fast. And so how are our cities coping with this boom? Remarkably well, Paul. Really? Yeah, so what I've found is that even though um, there's been, there has been this period of very fast population growth and the infrastructure that, that we're building in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane means that those, there's a lot of construction going on now, but it hasn't come on stream in time to help um, with the population growth. And yet what we have seen is a remarkable stability in the amount of time and the distance that people travel when they're going to work. So the the distance that people have travel have been travelling has barely changed in the five years between 2011 and 2016. And for the majority of commute times, they're also the same. The median commute time has been 30 minutes for well over a decade in most Australian cities. Including Melbourne at this time of internationally interesting population growth. Including in Melbourne. It's also, so what that means is that half of, of Melbourne commuters take 30 minutes or less to get to work, mm. one way trip. Same in, in Sydney and same in Brisbane. 
in, uh, you're also getting, for, for people who've got a short commute, uh, um, around a 15-minute commute is the norm for about a quarter of commuters. And people who have quite a long commute, um, the uh, taking about an hour, the, the proportion of people doing commutes that long is very small. And that's also been pretty stable. The only place where we see any change is that there's a bit of creeping up around the 45-minute mark. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are is a larger, a slightly larger share of people with commutes at that distance. But the overall picture is that there's very little change in the distances and the times that people need to get to work. But Marion, aren't I reading uh, reports from the Automotive Association and commentary from others about traffic chaos and gridlock in our cities? You are. (laughs) So... Well, I think um, people, there certainly is a level of community concern. There's no doubt about that. And th- and therefore, there's a level of political concern. Mm. And I think um, the best way to understand that is that um, what has happened is that we are seeing greater crowding and congestion, but it's not actually translating into longer trips. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are the implications for public policy, for state governments, if, and you've set it out very well in the Orange Book, if in fact our cities are coping remarkably well? I think the implication is that um, for governments to not assume that the only response to crowded infrastructure is to build more. What what we can see is that people make a, a variety of adaptations to population growth and new public transport, new roads, um, are part of that solution, adding capacity. But there's lots of things that people do. That people can change where they live. They can change where they work. They can change when they travel. Mm-hmm. There's an uptick in working from home, mm-hmm. and they can change their mode of travel. Um, whether they take move to public transport, for example, or move to their car, in order to keep their home and their work within a tolerable commute of each other. But we still will and do, you acknowledge, need new transport infrastructure, yes? Well, the way to assess that is to look at each project on its merits. But mm-hmm. I would expect um, when you do have rapid, very rapidly growing population that there would be some call for more transport infrastructure. And, and it is worth noting that we do see capacity constraints on some public transport routes, for example. And so the ability to absorb new population is not infinite. But it's also, you know, there's just a lot more flex in the system than people appreciate when they think, that you must build a new road if the one you've got's crowded. So we all know that big new roads, big new rail tunnels are hellishly expensive. Do we do these things well in Australia? So doing them well would mean that um, you'd first of all identify the problem that you're trying to solve, look at the variety of realistic options which you might use to solve it, um, scope them out, develop them up and assess the merits because um, any given problem that you might have, like um, east-west congestion across the north of the city, um, there are a variety of ways that you can address that. Some of them are much more expensive than others, and and they have a lot of flow-on effects. So it's a complex process, but rigorously assessing them rather than promising them on a sketchy sketchy basis is, is very important because um, the amount of money involved is huge. It's um, absolutely eye-watering, and it's we're not doing this out of an infinite budget. So for 
in the real world, if if you do blow all your money on one mega project and it turns out not mm. to have been a very well-chosen one, there is an opportunity cost for all the other things that you don't get, um, whether that is relieving local bottlenecks, which can be very cost-effective, or even spending the money in other portfolios. You are making some particular and quite sharp recommendations in the Orange Book, and one that uh, caught my eye was congestion charging in the major capitals of Sydney and Melbourne. Just tell me your thinking about that and what does that mean, Marion? Yeah, so um, what it means is, so we've had a look at congestion, um, published a report um, at the end of last year, at the end of 2017, um, diagnosing road congestion in Sydney and Melbourne. And um, my view is it's not as bad as media reports would necessarily have you believe, Mm -hmm. but it it is a very localised phenomenon and it is spread across the city to some extent and some people do experience quite significant delays and unpredictability and so the thinking behind congestion charging is that um, you can't really build your way out of congestion because the more you build the more demand um, the more new drivers come onto the road to use a new capacity but but we also know and have known for a long time that a lot of the trips that people are taking in peak periods in congested places, they do have some flexibility. And, and so congestion charging is a way of um, people facing the fact that each of them, by choosing to drive at a congested time and place, are slowing everyone else down by their own little mm. contribution. Mm. And so to to discourage that from a, a small proportion of drivers does have a very beneficial impact on traffic flows generally. And some people can save money by doing this and, and it, it's not necessarily detrimental to them to do that. So you've set out in the report a program for governments to make better selection of transport infrastructure. You've set out congestion uh, measures such as the one we've just discussed. Overall, Marion, give us an overall picture. We're living, most of us in Australia, are living in big and growing capital cities. Should we be confident that our state governments are capable of managing them properly and making them better? Of course, we should be confident of that. And and a lot of what happens is not actually engineered by state governments. Mm. Part of my thinking is that um, there, there's a lot of benefit in noticing that people do make a lot of adaptations and stop making it so difficult for them to do so. So we make it very expensive for people to move house because um, we encourage home ownership um, by tax and subsidy concessions, mm. but then penalise people if they then later want to sell up and buy a different home because stamp duty is at such high levels. Mm. So we make we make it difficult for people to adapt in ways that they might naturally prefer. We also, zoning and planning regulations have the effect of um, encouraging or make it difficult for, for um, urban infill and therefore encouraging sprawl. And, and that, that also has implications for congestion. Yes. So there's quite a few things that governments could do less of <laughs> that would allow us as citizens to, to, manage our, to manage these trade-offs in ways that we choose rather than thinking the only solution to growing population must be to build more big transport infrastructure. We live in hope, 
Marianne, thank you. Thanks, Paul. Schools are one of the biggest responsibilities of our state governments, arguably the biggest. Joining me now is Grattan Institute's School Education Program Director, Peter Goss. So, Peter, here's the question everyone wants answered. How are our schools performing and which states are doing best? Hi, Paul. Overall, our schools are performing pretty well. Mm -hmm. The challenge is they should and could be performing a whole lot better, given how well off we are as a nation. We recently released a report comparing across states in terms of how much progress their students make in primary school and secondary school. Um, that gives some important indications. It's also important to remember that what we want out of schooling is a broad, rich and deep education mm. that sets young people up with choices. So to get a real picture requires a few different snapshots. That's what we've done uh, with this orange book. In terms of the learning progress measures, Queensland primary schools are the star performer. Right. They've lifted their game uh, consistently over the last six or eight years. In secondary school, New South Wales does a particularly good job of stretching the most advantaged kids, Victoria supporting the least advantaged. One of the big messages from that report is that no state or territory had all of the answers. Before I get on to some of the specifics about how all student learning can be improved across all areas, can I just get out of the way a quick issue, Peter? Um, the so-called funding wars in school education. Where are we at? Are we finally making progress towards needs-based funding? It feels as though the funding wars are never ending, but the reality is we've made really substantial progress over the last two or three years, and indeed over the last decade. Both sides of politics now agree with the broad concept of needs-based funding. Their versions of it are closer than they ever were before. Mm -hmm. Simon Birmingham, when he was the education minister, cleared out a whole range of the special deals. And pleasingly, what Labor will take to the next election mm -hmm. builds on that rather than uh, taking a step backwards. There are still a few wrinkles in there. No model is perfect. But we are getting much closer to the goal, which is consistent needs-based funding, and then getting funding off the front page so that we can talk about some of these other factors. Okay, so I know that you're passionate about some of these other factors, including ways to improve student learning. So tell me more about that. Tell me what, from your work on the Orange Book and your expertise over the years, how can we do that, Peter? We need to recognise that not every student school is equally alike. Mm -hmm. And so the teaching, uh, and the teaching is an organic process. So, Paul, you could do a steps A, B and C in a classroom and get answer, uh, answer D. I could do steps A, B and C, and on a different day, I could get answer Z. Mm -hmm. So it's not that there's a single recipe that we should expect all teachers to follow. However, we should be helping teachers to choose those practices 
that really do lift student learning. We know a lot about them in some areas, particularly in areas like early reading, but also in areas of mathematics. We know about the importance of high expectations, mm -hmm. of building relationships with students. And so building, using that evidence base more systematically in the areas that are fairly well understood will help us to lift the outcomes in some of the traditional academic areas, and they still matter, even in an era of Google. <laughs> it still matters that, that uh, the young people have their heads around some core ideas and some core content mm -hmm. so that they can then apply that and almost know the right questions to ask. So, so if those are the sort of concepts that we want uh, to apply, how are the state governments of Australia going in adapting to that better education world? If we take a big step back, there is a pendulum that swings backwards and forwards. Indeed. It's a, and the pendulum that I'm thinking about is how prescriptive we are. So maybe back in the 60s, uh, there was a move to that schools were relatively more prescriptive. Through the 80s, 90s and 2000s, there was a move to saying, actually, the schools and the teachers and the principals know best. Let's give the power to them. And that was a necessary move to give them enough autonomy in order to be able to make good local decisions. But that pendulum probably overswung. Mm -hmm. It went more into saying, Paul, you know your school best, you're on your own, mm -hmm. rather than, Paul, you know your school best, here's some support, here's the things that we know that work, and here's some ways you might choose which are most appropriate for you and how to actually apply them appropriately. So we, the pendulum seems now to be swinging back a little bit, not to a command and control approach, which is not going to work, mm -hmm. but away from that idea of a, a thousand flowers blooming where the sad reality is we had a thousand weeds blooming as well. Mm -hmm. What an adaptive education system is, is one where teachers understand their impact on how much their students are learning. Mm -hmm. When one teacher or a group of teachers is helping the students learn more. That's why we focus on progress. It's the idea of learning more. Yep. When a teacher or a group of teachers know have that information in hand, then they can make professional, responsible decisions. Do I keep going with a certain approach? Do I stop? And in, into that, we pour the growing education evidence base that when we identify an area that we want to work on, in one school, it might be numeracy, in another, it might be writing or resilience or science. But when a school chooses an area to focus on, it needs to both be able to understand its own impact and draw on the evidence base of what works best elsewhere. And one of the key issues is how do you balance between those two things, mm, big mm. scale evidence and what it looks like in the classroom? Mm. And we think that there is a real opportunity for Australia to build up what's sometimes called the middle layer. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've uh, recommended in both the Orange Book but also in previous reports, the idea of creating a cohort of the top teachers, instructional leaders, we call them, who would work within schools, building the, building the capabilities of their peers, and then master teachers working across schools to share that knowledge. 
One, one small but important point is that in building a workforce that way, we need to recognise how complex teaching is. Yep. It's not about generically good capabilities to be able to relate to students and be inspiring. There are also, there's also deep technical expertise. The way in which you teach fractions to primary school students is very difficult to, different to the way you teach algebra to secondary school sure. students, let alone the way you teach a foreign language or a humanities. We need to respect that that professional knowledge, it's sometimes called pedagogical content knowledge, knowing how to teach a specific t- subject. I and a lot of our policies, are uh, policy recommendations, are based around how do we put that information back into the hands of every teacher. And I found that recommendation of new categories of expert teachers and master teachers very interesting. That sort of approach has been followed overseas with some success, Peter? Absolutely. Um, We need to be very careful if we're going to look to East Asia because there are Mm. some things that we do right in our schools um, about a broad education that they may be not. Um, but they are very good at figuring out how do you teach specific subjects in the most effective way. And one of the tools that they use is to use their best teachers to create real career paths for them. That's actually a great thing for the broader teaching profession. It means there's a career path where if you're really good at teaching and mm-hmm. you love teaching, you don't have to move out of the classroom. <laughs> you know, we need people who, who who want to be principals, but we also want the best teachers to continue to have the maximum impact on the kids. So yes, that approach has been tried. In Australia, every state and territory has tried it in a bit of a mishmash way. The tap gets switched and turned on by one side of government, mm-hmm. off by the other, backwards and forwards, if we're going to really make that approach work, it needs to become just part of how the business of teaching is done. One final point, Peter, but a very important one. You make an explicit plea in the Orange Book for dramatically increased focus on early childhood education. Why is that? We've done a lot of analysis over the 10 years that Grattan has had a school education program Mm. of how well students are growing and progressing in their learning as they move through school. The disturbing reality is that the gaps widen. Disadvantaged students are behind at the start of school and then fall further behind. Right. These ideas of how do we help teachers become more effective in their job That can address what happens in school. Yes. But it cannot address the fact that there is a one, potentially two-year gap in school readiness when uh, certain children start school. Mm. And if you start that far behind, well, maybe if you get an outstanding teacher in, in the first year of school, then you might get back on track. But we're making the job harder for ourselves Mm. that in order to reduce those initial gaps high-quality early learning makes a real difference. It must be high-quality. And and the children who it makes the most difference to are those who are the most disadvantaged. High-quality early learning makes a difference, I have no doubt. But does it require a lot more money? It would require some more money. Mm -hmm. 
It's uh, the international evidence summaries note quite appropriately that it is one of the more expensive interventions. It is one of the interventions that done well does have stronger evidence. If we think of this in, in a short-term budget, we'll get the answer wrong 100 times out of 100. The point is not whether it's going to cost a little bit more money now. The point is, if we can get it right, the enormous amounts of money that can be saved by diverting people away from unemployment, away from welfare, away from jails, mm -hmm. and just as importantly, the thousands, hundreds of thousands of better life opportunities that we can help create. Peter Goss, thank you. Thanks very much. Danielle Wood is the Director of Grattan Institute's Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Program. Danielle, what does the State Orange Book tell us about the health of the state and territory budgets around Australia? Well, what we found is that the state budgets in the main are in good short-term health. So the sort of measures we look at, their operating balance, um, New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, Tasmania, all ran modest operating surpluses in the past year. Mm -hmm. WA, South Australia, ACT and Northern Territory were running deficits, but, but generally on the smaller side. We're seeing net debt position improve as they run surpluses. They're using that to pay down debt. Many states have also sold significant government assets, which in some cases they've also used to pay down debt. But our concern is actually more around the, the longer term budget positions. I mean, should we be in a better space now given substantial revenue windfalls, particularly the boom in property, which has led to really high growth in land tax and stamp duty revenues? We've had a mining boom in WA, which gave huge amounts to their budget bottom line in terms of mining royalties. And as we've had those big increases in revenue, we've seen spending drift up in a lot of states. So there's some potential concerns about the medium and longer term budget positions. And the spending pressures will surely only increase given the ageing of the population and indeed the booming size of the population. That's right. So there's certainly a number of areas where we think there's going to be pretty strong pressure on spending going forward. Mm -hmm. We know um, Victoria and New South Wales both have very significant infrastructure programs, Indeed. which they've now got underway to cope with the very strong population that you're talking about. Um, so that's transport infrastructure, but also things like schools come under pressure when you've got mm. a growing population. You just you simply need to have more schools in place. And mm. um, you know, Pete's written some great stuff on that. And then longer term, you know, health is really a key pinch point for, for government budgets, particularly at the state government level, because hospital spending we know is actually the fastest growing area of health spending. It's massively outpaced growth in the broader economy over the past five years, and certainly you know the same if you go back even further. And as you have an aging population, that only compounds those sort of pressures. Mm -hmm. um, so certainly I think you know state government treasurers once they start thinking um, within the, the kind of the election cycle and start thinking longer term, that's certainly um, an area of pressure that they're going to face. We'll ask about those longer term sort of strategies in a minute, but tell me a bit more about Western Australia, Danny, because that's really had the sort of roller coaster ride of recent years. How's it placed now that the mining boom is over? 
they certainly have had a, a roller coaster ride. So they've had they had a huge um, influx of revenue to their budgets, as I said, through through mining royalties. But also, as the state economy grew really rapidly, things like payroll tax revenues mm. grew. They had a property boom, land tax revenue, stamp duties, all grew. And then what happened is the mining boom came off. Those royalties fell away at the same time that the Commonwealth Grants Commission, which allocates the GST revenue between states, their formula operates with a lag. So when you're doing very, very well compared to other states, your allocation of GST revenue comes down, but that happens with a lag over time. Mm. And that actually really started to bite as their revenues were falling away. Um, So that put them in quite a difficult position. And I think there's certainly a case to be made that they didn't manage that boom well. They should have seen the fact that those revenues were going to fall away and they didn't plan for that. In fact, Mm. they really significantly increased their spending during that period. Mm. Um, And that's what's put them in a challenging position now. As we know, um, they've been very active in campaigning for the federal government to to boost their GST allocation and and they've been successful in doing that. Um, So that will certainly help their budget position. But over time, they're going to have to, I think, work out ways to, to cope with that sort of boom and bust cycle that, that is very much tied to, to being in a big mining state. Okay, so let's think more broadly about some of those challenges for the future, not just for the West, but for all of the states. How can state governments in Australia enhance the health of their budgets? And the reason I ask that, Danielle, is we often tend to think of the budget levers as being under the control of the federal government? Well, there's certainly, you know, in this report overall, there's a huge number of recommendations which would go to the health of state budgets. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, a lot of the stuff on tax, the the land tax um, stamp duty swap, um, a lot of the proposals being made by our schools team and our health team, all of which would help improve the long-term sustainability of those budgets. But there's also things governments can do around the the budget institutions to kind of create Mm -hmm. the right incentives to manage sustainable budgets over time. Um, So something we did in this report was to have a look at fiscal targets. So these are the targets that governments set for themselves. Um, These are the objectives that they say, you know, judge our budget against these kind of standards. So you can have a, a target around, you know, what you want your budget balance to be. You might have a target around your debt levels. And what we see is that, um, all the states do have some sort of targets. Mm-hmm. They very good much thing. good thing, but they very much um, you know vary in terms of um, their ambition, their clarity. Right. And so you know we're suggesting that they go away and actually review those and come up with a kind of a clearer set of targets, which would help um, hold those governments to account. I think one valuable reform, tell me if you agree, Danielle, over the past 20 years or so is the so-called intergenerational report. But you express some concerns in the Orange Book about the scope of that report, and you put some suggestions as to how to improve it. Yes, that's right. So I think it's it's a valuable exercise, the intergenerational report, because what it does is take our minds out of the short-term political cycle mm-hmm. and really look at some of those long-term pressures on budgets that I've been talking about. So it, the intergenerational report is done by the Commonwealth Government yes. every five years, and it basically looks at the health of the budget over the next 40 years mm. under a business-as-usual scenario. If nothing changes, where will we be in 40 years' time? That generally looks pretty ugly. Um, my criticism of it, though, is that by only looking at Commonwealth 
government revenues and spending. So you actually miss a really important piece of the picture, which is what's happening at the state government level. And the Commonwealth government can make decisions which very actively shift costs back onto the states. Mm -hmm. That makes their numbers look better in the IGR which is exactly what we saw in the 2015 IGR that followed the, the 2014 budget where the Commonwealth government made decisions mm-hmm. to, to cut hospital spending that was going allocations for hospitals to the states. Um, and, and you missed the picture that that's obviously making state government budgets look worse over time. So, you know, I would certainly argue and others have suggested that a, a true intergenerational report should look at spending across all levels of government if the Commonwealth government won't go down that path, I think the state should be doing this exercise on their own, which is currently what New South Wales is doing. Right. Victoria um, has had an inquiry recommend that they they move as well to do an intergenerational report, but the government hasn't accepted that recommendation. Okay. Now, institutional reform. I found this one of the most interesting chapters in the Orange Book. Uh, first up, Danielle, just explain what we're talking about when we refer to institutional reforms in the Australian political system. Well, what we are talking about, and it might mean different things to different people, but essentially we're talking about the set of rules and regulations that govern the way the government does business. Right. So we're talking about um, rules around money in the system, so political donations, how much we can see of that money Mm -hmm. and any restrictions on money coming in. We're talking about rules around lobbying, who politicians actually meet with and the visibility of that. And then we're talking about rules around conduct. Um, So, you know, what restrictions are there on the way are ministers of parliament actually behave in terms of whether they can accept gifts or secondary employment, all those types of things. Now, rather fascinatingly, you've managed to rate the state's on those sorts of institutional reform measures. And the range is really quite enormous. I think there's an A rating for New South Wales, Queensland, the ACT, all the way down to an E rating for Tasmania and the Northern Territory. What what are the big differences that we're seeing here, Danielle? Isn't there something really powerful about uh, putting it in terms of school report <laughs> cards, isn't there? <laughs> no one wants to be the E. Um, look, so there's a huge difference across the states in in their regimes across all of these factors, which is why you get that really big disparity Mm. in ratings. Um, So if we look at some of the ones that have got um, an A, so New South Wales and and Queensland, for example, they've made some really significant progress over the past five years in introducing reforms. Such as? So um, in both of them, uh, we can see we've got visibility over who ministers meet with. They publish ministerial diaries. Right. um, Which is not something that happens in any other state other than um, the ACT. Mm -hmm. They have good visibility over political donations, where the money's coming from. So they've got a threshold for declaring donations, so putting them on the public record of of $1,000. Um, as do Victoria and a number of other states. In contrast, the Commonwealth Government thresholds currently sits at 13,800. Say that again. What's the difference between the threshold in the better states and the Commonwealth? So the better states have got a $1,000 threshold. So we can see anyone that gives more than $1,000 in in a year will be able to have visibility over who they are. At the Commonwealth level, that's $13,800. Right. So that's a huge difference. And not only that, at the Commonwealth level, the parties aren't required to aggregate donations. So an individual or an entity can give a series of donations Hmm. under that threshold 
and in the party returns we won't be able to see mm. that. Whereas states both have a much lower declaration threshold and normally about $1,000 in the best performing states and they require aggregation. Okay, so. so some of the states are doing very well and get an A rating. I don't know that in the state orange book you've given a rating to the Commonwealth, but can I ask on this sort of scale, how would the Commonwealth government rate at the moment, Danielle? It would be... An E, I think. Really? I mean, if I look at it, the Tasmanian donations regime basically follows the Commonwealth donations right. regime and they're, they're getting an, an E for their transparency. So the Commonwealth would be there as well. So that our most important tier of government makes it impossible for the electorate, for voters to follow the money. That's right. So in terms of the private money going to political parties, so this is you know not including public funding, over between 60 and 70% of that, we have no visibility over where it comes from. So it's a huge share that we're just not aware of. They also perform poorly at other measures of transparency. They don't publish ministerial diaries. Mm. We've got a pretty um, poor lobbying register at a Commonwealth level. Um, and they don't have um, you know, codes of conduct that apply to backbenchers, for example. So the Commonwealth, I would say, is behind almost every state on almost every one of these measures. And you've written extensively on this, uh, Danielle, not just in the Orange Book, but beyond. You keep referring to a crisis of trust in the Australian political system. Is that what you're referring to? What, what, what is this crisis of trust? The crisis of trust is, is somewhat broader. And we're calling it a crisis because no matter what sort of survey or indicator you look at, trust in government in Australia at the moment is at the lowest point that we've been measuring this stuff in history. So if we use the Australian mm -hmm. Electoral Study, for example, trust is the lowest point since we've been taking that survey in, in 1969. Right. And I think there's a whole lot of factors that contribute to falling trust. But one of the factors is the perception that, that special interests have increasing control um, over policy outcomes, that they're sort of dictating policy to government. Um, and people are highly sceptical, therefore, about these kind of different ways special interests try and get influence through lobbying, through political donations. And reforms in these areas are incredibly politically popular. So here's the question, Danielle, after your work on the Orange Book and on uh, other reports for Grattan, exploring and teasing out some of these very important institutional issues and pressures, my question is, is Australian politics in a period of inevitable decline with these falling levels of trust between voters and their representatives? Do you despair about the state of our democracy or is there room for hope? I don't think the decline is inevitable. Mm -hmm. There's certainly challenges that will always be there, um, for example, around the, the way the media landscape is changing. Indeed. But there's a whole lot of things that are within the control of government, which I think could boost trust. Um, so some of these institutional reforms, as I said, they're both politically popular and I think good policy. Mm -hmm. Then there's leadership stability may, may well contribute as well. You know, a period of quiet <laughs> policy delivery could probably go a long way. Um, so I think it's within government's hands and within government's control to actually improve trust. And therefore, I would say I'm, I'm optimistic. If the political will is there, I think an improvement can be made. Danielle Wood, thank you.
Brendan Coates is a policy fellow at Grattan Institute whose specialties include state budgets and housing. Brendan, welcome to you. Thank you. Before we get into some of the very interesting recommendations from the Orange Book about taxes and housing, give me a feel, Brendan, for the for the tax bases of Australia's state governments. So states tend to collect uh, most of their revenues, uh, the, at least the revenues that they collect themselves rather than from the Commonwealth, uh, come from stamp duties, mm-hmm. land taxes and payroll tax. That constitutes the the main tax bases um, that the states use. There are also others like taxes on insurance duties, uh, motor vehicle registrations and the like. Um, And they're the main taxes that the states have as opposed to, say, the Commonwealth that collects income tax and company tax. But even within states, there are some variations. Who, which state has the best mix, if you like, the most efficient tax system and which ones are lagging? Well, look, we'll start with the worst. So the worst at the moment are the big three states, so New South Wales, Mm. Victoria and Queensland, which, you know, to some might be quite surprising, um, essentially because they're relying much more on stamp duties. Um, So this is taxes on the transfer of property, particularly Mm. residential property from one owner to another. Um, these are taxes that have been around since Australia's Federation because they're very easy to collect. Yep. It's a big lump sum that you pay when you buy a house. Um, but with the housing boom, the value of houses has gone up a lot and we're also transacting more and more homes. And that's meant that there's been more stamp duty revenue into those major states. We'll come back to stamp duties, but um, there's a line in the Orange Book which intrigued me. It says, there's a big prize for state tax reform. So what's the prize or indeed the prizes? Well, the prize on offer here is really higher incomes for their residents. So any state premier that does bite the bullet and um, undertake major state tax reform could generate some really big income growth for their for their citizens. So the big one is to change from stamp duty towards a broad-based land tax, which would um, potentially boost the incomes of Australians or make them about $17 billion a year better off while also making housing more affordable. So that's just over 1% of, equivalent just over 1% of GDP. So stamp duty should go in Australia? Yes, that's right. That's the recommendation of pretty much any tax economist in Australia because stamp duty, it has, it's very costly to, to citizens because it makes it harder for people to move to take a new job or to move to find a better house that better suits their needs. So you might start off buying an apartment or a small house, you have a couple of kids, you may want to move to a larger house. Um, It makes it harder just to sell up that house and get a a different one that would um, better suit your needs or to go and take a job on the other side of the city. So you might be working, you know, in the the eastern suburbs and there's a job in the west. Do you set up and move your whole family? You know, that's hard to do. It's particularly Mm. hard to do when you're going to be on the hook for $40,000 or $50,000 of stamp duty. Nonetheless, as we discussed at the start of this conversation, state treasurers and treasuries rely very heavily on stamp duty revenues. What's going to replace it, Brendan? Well, the thing that should replace it would be a broad-based property tax. Um, Ideally, that tax would be levied on unimproved land values, so just the the value of the land itself, excluding any buildings or other improvements. Mm -hmm. Um, It would be an annual tax paid each year of you know somewhere between five dollars per thousand thousand dollars of unimproved land value to seven dollars uh, right. depending on the state um, the challenge here is that stamp duties are actually relatively politically popular whereas land taxes tend to be relatively unpopular why would that be well i don't like paying stamp duty no but you only pay it once 
And you pay it at the time often when you're already forking over several hundred thousand dollars for a house. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't appear to be that big a thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas a land tax is a a tax that you're paying every year. So it's really salient. You know, you're paying one, two, three thousand dollars in land tax a year, or at least you would be under these proposed reforms. And people see that and it just reminds them that they're paying it each year. So there's some really interesting work in the US that shows that where that land tax is actually hidden as part of your mortgage, land tax rates in those states are actually much higher because people aren't as worried. Nonetheless, it's a very big transition, Brendan. How do we make the transition and over what period? Well, I think the smartest way to make the transition is to do what the ACT has done because the challenges that you have here, uh, which is that you need to maintain the budget revenues, um, you need to deal with uh, the fact that there are asset-rich, income-poor households. So yep. that tends to be older Australians that are retired but might own a house that's worth $1 or $2 million. And then you also have the challenge of people who have recently paid stamp duty and aren't re- think that they really shouldn't have to pay again. Mm. So I mentioned that the ACT is actually partway through this reform at the moment. The way that they're doing it, which is the right way, is to gradually bring down stamp duty rates over the course of, they're doing 20 years, we would probably say something more like 10, and gradually increase this broad-based property tax that would replace it. It would be revenue neutral for the government, so the government would be able to say at the start of the process, look, this is about making a better tax system, it's not about raising more tax revenue. Um, It would then soften the blow for those that have recently paid stamp duty and then you would also have arrangements in place that those that are asset rich and income poor so older Australians would be able to borrow against the value of their house in order to not pay that debt and the debt would simply sit there until they move that from that house and then they would pay that would come out of the sale proceeds of the house. You're also calling for land taxes to be extended what does that mean? So at the moment land tax which essentially only applies to uh, residential property investors. It doesn't apply to owner-occupiers. So if you own your own house, you don't pay land tax currently. You're only paying council rates. It also applies to commercial landholders. But what we're recommending here is to make those that own their own home and live in it um, liable for land tax. So that would raise about $7 billion nationally, we think, if you did do that. Well, hang on a minute. I can't let you slip that one through. You are recommending that land tax apply on the family home? Yes, that's correct. Although I think the family home is such an emotive term that I think it even gets us off on the wrong foot. I can hear screams from the suburbs of Australia and indeed from the parliament houses of Australia. Just explain to me why we should make that move, Brendan. Well, at the moment, the exemption of um, of um, the family home from land tax basically means that it subsidises people to be in their own home Sure. Um, compared to if they're an investor. It means that housing is more expensive than it probably should be because not having to pay that tax means that people are willing to pay more for the property and house home values are in fact higher. Right. And so in the interest really of fairness now, we've reached the point in Australia on housing affordability where most or many and possibly most younger Australians, particularly if they're, you know, less well off, will be unlikely to buy their own home. And so the broad, um, the broad dream of home ownership is already going to be slipping away for some people. So I think it's only appropriate that, I think as Peter Mayers put it, that uh, homeowners, should, homeowners should pay the rent on uh, housing affordability. They should make a contribution to those that are not in a position um, to purchase their own home. Okay, we'll get on to the, the dream of uh, home ownership in a moment. But you also recommend uh, introduction of betterment taxes. 
explain that to me. What's a betterment tax and why would th- should that apply? Um, so betterment taxes have been discussed a lot in the context of funding transport infrastructure where there's basically some piece of investment that takes place like a new rail line or you know the Melbourne the Melbourne Metro is a great example sure. and it's going to increase the value of homes that live that are around it. Now Grattan she just said before that that is not necessarily taxing that uplift in land value, which is a windfall gain to the landowner. Mm-hmm. It exists, but it's kind of hard to do. Mm-hmm. What we're proposing in this in, in this report is instead that you look at applying betterment taxes to the uplift in land values that come from rezoning. So essentially, the land planning rules determine what you can build on a site. Yep. So you might only be able to build a two-bedroom or sorry, two-story house, mm-hmm. and then you can apply for that to change. You might be able to build a six-story apartment building. Now, that's obviously a much more valuable use And what that would mean is that the land value goes up. And so if you apply for this kind of change and it's granted to you, that's a real big windfall gain to you. So the best example of this was um, the rezoning of quite a lot of Fisherman's Bend um, by the former planning minister, Matthew Guy, which generated very large windfall gains to certain landholders, when really a lot of that is a community benefit that probably should have meant that um, a lot of it was taxed. You know, we had situations where people were, We've subsequently had to buy land for schools at the inflated price, um, given that the rezoning had already taken place and actually cost the government money. This would be a way of actually generating quite substantial tax revenues. It's very economically efficient. It's as efficient as land taxes themselves, which are the most efficient taxes Mm -hmm. that we have in Australia. Um, And, you know, it's probably a really fair outcome as well. So a lot of what we've talked about with regard to tax reform here would have some impact on housing and housing affordability. I want to talk a bit more about that now. But first of all, can I ask you this? House prices are on the way down, Brendan, especially in Sydney and Melbourne. Has Australia still got an affordability crisis? Well, there was a recent Ipsos poll that was done with The Age that essentially showed that housing affordability is still rated as pretty much the most important issue for Australians, despite price falls of... 5-6% 5-6% in Sydney and Melbourne. And I think the answer is in the is the reason why is essentially because prices went up 60-70% in Melbourne and Sydney over the last few years. They've now got single digit price falls. Housing, you know, is back towards where it was maybe, you know, in late 2016, early 2017, a bit more earlier in Sydney, a bit later in Melbourne. And so it's going to take a lot more than what we've seen for housing to be affordable to younger Australians. Okay, so the problem remains, what sort of reforms are you suggesting in this orange book that would make housing more affordable for Australians and in particular for the younger Australians? So the big reform or the big options that the states have to basically improve affordability is to make it easier to build more homes, particularly in the inner and middle ring suburbs of our major cities. Now, not the so- it's not the sole driver of why um, housing affordability has gotten worse, but the fact that it's been hard to build houses in those inner and middle ring suburbs meant that we've actually been building fewer homes compared to population growth than what we were in the past. Isn't it hard to build homes in the middle suburbs because people don't want them? Well, this is precisely um, the point, is that housing affordability affects all the residents of a city, mm-hmm. um, but local councils reflect those that get to vote in their elections. Those that would move into an area, if, for example, more homes were built, don't get a chance to vote. They're not represented through the political process. And mm-hmm. so you end up with a situation where councils represent 
quite rationally the interests of those that already live there. And for a lot of people that already live in those suburbs, it makes a lot of sense to keep exactly what they have. If you're 10 kilometres from the centre of Melbourne, particularly in the southeast, and you've got access to very good public transport comparatively to the rest of Melbourne, you've got access to really good parks and you're in a really nice location, why would you want that to change when you already have that? Mm. But the reality is, is that we all live in this city together. Population growth into Melbourne has been incredibly strong, something like 23 2.4% yep. per year. That's one of the fastest rates amongst um, cities in the developed world. That means that we need to accommodate all the additional Australians that are coming in, um, and that means building more homes. So you're talking about a very rational proposition to create more housing, but you're also describing a very big political problem. How does one overcome the politics to increase density in the inner and middle suburbs of our cities? Well, I think you've just described why we haven't had um, substantial reforms to improve housing affordability in the last two decades, which Mm. is it's going to be hard, it's not going to be politically easy, and all the easy options that are often put forward tend to be relatively ineffective. Mm -hmm. So I think the governments need to do a couple of things at the state level. One, they need to make the case for why... um, more housing may in fact be a good thing. Mm -hmm. So that, of course, means housing would be cheaper. It also probably makes it easier and cheaper to deliver better public transport into those locations. Yes. Um, More people into an area can also increase the vibrancy and um, increase the amount of commercial opportunities that are in an area as well, like increased shopping and the like. Um, So that's one thing that state governments need to do and to identify the trade-off that essentially if you do not allow more housing to be built in your suburbs, then your children and your grandchildren won't be able to live near you because they will not be able to afford to. And so they'll be a lot further away. And also that when you look to downsize your home if you retire, if you have not allowed the kind of townhouses and apartments that most older Australians do tend to downsize into to be available, then you will have to move somewhere else. You won't be able to find that downsizing option in your community. So let's talk more about those young people, our children seeking to buy their first home. One of the policies that seems to be very attractive to state governments, particularly when they get close to elections, is first home buyer grants. Does that work? Well, no, it doesn't, although state governments have tended to um, shift from providing a direct grant to basically providing a a discount on stamp duty for first-time buyers. Um, And the problem here is essentially that if you... They haven't worked for decades. I think, as Saul Eastlake has um, documented very extensively, uh, what what it means is essentially that you end up having more money to spend on the house if you don't have to pay stamp duty. Sure. So you bid more for the property... The property ends up going for a higher price and the main beneficiaries from those stamp duty concessions end up being those that sold the house. So they end up being first home vendors grants rather than first home buyers grants. Now, there is an argument that's put forward that because it's cutting stamp duty, and we've said before in this podcast that stamp duty is bad, that it then, you know, is a step on the path to making those kind of stamp duty reforms that we mentioned. But that's not necessarily true in the case of stamp duty concessions for first home buyers because the the economic costs from stamp duty come from when you go to buy that second house. Mm -hmm. And so the stamp duty cut for first home buyers helps them buy the first house. It makes the the price higher. But then if they want to go move in the future, they still face that same impediment. And so you still have those same economic costs. I want to finish, Brendan, by asking you about Uh, social housing, public housing, surely there's a crying need for more money for public housing for homeless or potentially homeless people and the, the most disadvantaged Australians. 
Uh, do you put that case? How can we increase public housing? So there is certainly a case for increasing um, public or what is more often now called social housing, mm-hmm. which is often run by community housing organisations. Um, but I think it, it – so the first thing is it's going to be expensive. So each 100,000 extra units of social housing costs you about $900 million each and every year to run. Right. Or you could give that as an upfront capital contribution of somewhere between 10 and $15 billion. So that's to get 100,000 more social housing units in perpetuity. Right. Now, we only have about 400,000 now. So that would be boosting social housing from 4% to 5% of the housing stock. Mm-hmm. That would make some difference, but again, it's very expensive. And because it's so expen- it's essentially so expensive because there's such a large gap between what the resident can afford to pay or is asked to pay and what the cost of the housing actually is. And so since it's very expensive, you want to make sure that you're giving it to those that really need it the most. Sure. So social housing should be about making sure that those at great risk of long-term homelessness can get a roof over their heads and avoid all the terrible outcomes that can come from being homeless. Brendan Coates, thank you. Thank you. John Daly's joined me again. John, I want to ask you to take a step back. At the end of this project, which really looks over 10 years of Grattan reports, what are your reflections on where Australia's at? The first thing we have to remember is that this is a pretty good country. Uh, You ask Australians what do they think about their country, they'll usually give you a long list of problems. Mm -hmm. And then you ask, so which country in the world would you swap, swap with there's this long silence. And occasionally amongst the kind of, you know, truly policy committed, it's kind of, well, I might go to Denmark. But there's not a lot of places you'd rather be. My second reflection would be one of the reasons that this is a good place to be is precisely that we are dissatisfied and precisely that we have made any number of good policy choices in the past mm-hmm. and they've paid off. If we ask, why is it that Victoria has lower cost operations than lots of other places? And the answer is, well, because we made decisions 20 years ago to implement case mix, not a very exciting reform, but one that effectively pays hospitals for the kind of operations they do. So rather than giving a block grant to a hospital, you say, every appendicitis, appendectomy (laughs) you do, you'll get this much. And of course, when you pay hospitals like that, you put a real focus on cost. And over time, the cost has come down and down and down. And that means, of course, we can afford to do more and more uh, medical treatments um, that otherwise we'd probably struggle to afford. Um, if you look at why has um, uh, why have housing outcomes improved materially in Brisbane, uh, and we in fact now have fewer people in rental stress in, in Queensland than yes. we used to, the answer is, well, because combination of the Queensland Government and the Brisbane City Council made a completely conscious, deliberate decision um, you can read it in their planning documents that they would essentially encourage a lot more 10 to 20 storey apartments on the fringe of the Brisbane CBD. Uh, and unlike most of the planning documents in Australia, that is in fact exactly the planning mm-hmm. changes they made mm-hmm. and exactly what happened. And the consequence of that was that um, quite a lot of apartments got built. The consequence of that was that rents and prices came down in Brisbane. 
No doubt there were a bunch of people who owned those things who were not very happy about that. But of course, that was the idea. If you want housing to be more affordable, the price has to be lower. That's how it works. Uh, and uh, that was a completely deliberate policy choice and it had an impact. Um, there are some less happy stories. Yep. Um, you know, Western Australia had the mother of all mining booms. It spent every dollar that was coming in mm -hmm. the door at the very peak of the biggest mining boom pretty much in history. As all mining booms do, it fell off. And then the Western Australian government turned around and asked everybody else to pay for it. Uh, and they've wound up in a position where they have substantially more debt than essentially any other state government. New South Wales and Victoria, on the other hand, over the last five years have had an enormous property boom that very substantially increased their stamp duty receipts. Yes. But both governments were actually quite sensible about saying, one, we're not going to spend every dollar that comes through the door. We're going to very consciously run budget surpluses. And secondly, we're going to budget very prudently. So every year they've been predicting that the property boom will come off. And so every year they've been pleasantly surprised up until this year. And so every year they've wound up posting a surplus materially higher than they expected, mm. uh, which is a very good problem to have. <laughs> and so the New South Wales government in particular has essentially paid off all of the uh, net debt that the that it had. And now as we do see the property market coming off and we are seeing um, uh, uh, revenues for the New South Wales and Victorian government starting to fall, yes. their budgets are in a position to deal with that. So we have made some good decisions uh, and those decisions have paid off. Inherently, they're the kind of decisions that take a long time to pay yes. off. The kinds of things that state governments do, delivering hospital services, delivering new, um, school services, schooling, you know, you don't change that with by just pushing a button. If you want to change what actually happens in classrooms, then you have to have a program that affects every single region in the state, that affects every single school in the state, that affects every single classroom in the state, literally hundreds of thousands of classrooms um, across the country. That is a big ask. Uh, and so inevitably, things that are really going to make a difference take a while to flow through. Okay, but let me ask you this, John. John, you're the founding CEO of Grattan. You've spent 10 years thinking carefully and closely about these issues. So here's the big question. Are you an optimist? Should we as Australians be optimistic about our future? I think we should continue to be really critical of ourselves and really optimistic. Our track record is that we faced plenty of problems as a country uh, and we have nevertheless done pretty well. Mm -hmm. We are a very, very long way from most places apart from New Zealand. <laughs> uh, and nevertheless, we have built um, a country which is extraordinarily prosperous, um, which is by and large fairer than a lot of other places. Mm -hmm. Um, where if you get sick, chances are you will survive for a long time. Where if you have children, chances are they will be pretty well educated. Um, where if you turn the light switch on, it's going to turn on. Uh, and we should be very grateful for those things. But, but by and large, those things have happened because um, governments have set things up the right way. Then obviously businesses have kind of gone and done their thing, and that's a really important part of the story. Um, but a very part, important part of the story is governments have been prepared to make the tough decisions. I think it's fair to say we've made fewer tough decisions as a country over the last decade than mm -hmm. we did, say, during the um, 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. 
But we've made some tough decisions uh, and I hope that we can make a lot more because one, certainly looks like some states have made tougher decisions in some areas than others and therefore all states can learn something from someone else uh, and also take inspiration from someone else that you can do these things, the sky won't fall in, uh, you might even manage to get yourself re-elected and you'll have improved the lives of Australians on the way through. John Daly, thanks so much for your insights and for guiding us through the State Orange Book 2018. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you would like to read the Orange Book or indeed any of Grattan's reports and articles over the past 10 years, they're all available live and free, as they say, on our website, grattan.edu.au. On the Grattan podcast page for the State Orange Book, we've included a recommended reading list to help you through. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at GrattanInst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.